0: Verse 45 to 55, page 33. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stone and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sehaduta. But Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, This heap is the witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Methath. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and this pillar, which I have set between you and me? This heap is the witness, and the pillar is the witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahar, the God of our father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kingmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Earlier in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The word of the living God. You may be seated.
1: It's not uncommon for uh, certain Christians to say that, that their preference is to read and to study the New Testament rather than the Old Testament, and certainly that is understandable. The New Testament gives us the glory of Jesus Christ. It tells us the practical outworking of our faith. Contrast that with, let's say, the laws of the book of Exodus and Leviticus, or even the historical situations that we see in the book of Genesis or in the Chronicles. At first, it seems like a no-brainer that we ought to be spending more time in the New Testament and studying it and teaching it. But as you begin to study the New Testament, as you're reading it and, and looking into it pretty soon, it becomes apparent that the writers of the New Testament are driving you back to the Old Testament. They're forcing you to go back to the Old Testament Scriptures in order for you to understand the grand truths that they're presenting in the New Testament. Every glorious doctrine, every practical teaching rests on the trustworthiness as proved based on what God has done throughout the Old Testament. In other words, they make their arguments and they'll say, here's the truth, if you don't believe this truth, they don't word it quite that way, but here's the truth and the proof of that, and they go back to the Old Testament. And they they back up what they're saying in the New Testament by what God has already done in the Old. For instance, Consider uh, Paul's grand declaration in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. How do we know this? How do we know that all those things are working for good? Good. Well, the Greek word here is not the normal word that's used to know, the word gnosko, which is, is the word to tell us that, that uh, we can have intellectual knowledge, that we can uh, read something or we can study something. No, the word here is a different word. It's the word oida. And the word oida means experiential knowledge. We know by experience. And we know. But whose experience? Is it my personal experience? Well, that's possible. But when a person is going through struggles, they're not asking whether their personal experience has proved this to them. They want to know from what God has done historically that whatever situation they're in, that God is working it for the good. And so where do they learn that? They go to the scriptures. They go back to what God has done historically. We look at the Old Testament. We look at the story of Noah, of Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, Ruth, Hezekiah. Stories of those individuals who found themselves in difficult situations. And God worked all things for their good. And so we know by the experience of what God has done for them. And that's why the very next verse after Romans 8.28 states, "...for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." That word new means that He set His love on them from eternity. Why can we be assured that all things are going to work together for the good? Because we have seen what God has done in the past for those upon whom He set His love. And therefore, knowing that He has set His love on us through faith in Jesus Christ, we know that He will do the same things for us that He has already shown that He's doing through those people throughout the old testament. And that's what we've seen as we worked our way through Genesis now. With Abraham, with Isaac, and now with Jacob. It is not because they have anything in and of themselves that makes it worthwhile for God to do this. Abraham was a loser. Isaac was a loser. And Jacob was a quadruple loser. But God worked all things together for their good, for his glory. And so, as our theme from this passage this morning states, God will always glorify himself in fulfilling his purpose in spite of the human tendency to seek personal glory and blessing. God will work all things for whose good? Have you ever asked that question? You notice it doesn't say that he is working all things for your good. It says he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In other words, he's working it for the good, the good that he has purposed, because he has called you, because he set his love on you. And so as we look at this whole chapter, we only read the last uh, 11 verses, 12 verses, whatever it was, but we're looking at the whole chapter of Genesis 31. And as we look at this, there are four purposeful divisions that we have in this text. It's it's one of those structural things that, that we've been talking about as we've gone through the book of Genesis. And in this case, we have the first half is then paralleled by the second half. And each of those halves, has they're divided as well. So there are four sections in this chapter. Moses, as he wrote this book, wrote it in such a way that if you read it rightly, it grabs you and it sucks you in. There are repetitions, but those repetitions are to reinforce concepts. And so there's a purpose in this structure, in each section. What we have in this particular chapter is a contrast four times a contrast between what the human being is doing, what they're thinking, why they're making the decisions that they're making, and what God's divine purpose is. And so we have that contrast. Here's what the human makes a decision on, but here's what God was planning, what God was purposing in this. And if we can grasp those concepts... As Christians, we may oida, we may know by experience God working in our lives for the good. So the first division presents the contrast between human dread versus divine directives. Human dread, divine directives. You know, in the opening verses of this chapter, Jacob is deciding that he is going to leave Haran, which is where he had fled from his brother Esau, and has spent the last twenty years. He's married two daughters of Laban, Rebecca or Rachel and Leah. He has uh, had twelve sons uh, born to him, and he is now deciding to go back. To his home country. But what is he basing that on? Well, listen to his reasoning here as we see it in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 31. It says, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I'll be with you. Now, let's look at, at this. You see that contrast. On the one hand, Jacob is looking at Laban and going, this guy doesn't like me anymore. I mean, he's living in his house. He doesn't like me anymore, right? So he's making his decision based on that, but God has a purpose even in that. And God is sending him back. So you see that contrast. So notice that the human tendency in making decisions often is driven based on fear. This has been Jacob's default mode throughout his life. We've seen it again and again. When things get hot, Jacob runs. Verse 1 indicates that what was behind Laban's lack of favor towards Jacob when it says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that our father, and from what was our father's, he's gained all this wealth. Ooh, Jealousy. The brothers are jealous here. Jacob has done it again. Jacob has robbed someone of their inheritance, and he's gotten them a bit testy about it. Remember how that happened 20 years earlier, right? When he stole his brother's birthright and the blessing. It says, Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Jacob doesn't seem to know how to handle this family conflict stuff, right? He doesn't seem to, to know how to do anything but to run from it. But how about you? Is that only a problem for Jacob? Isn't that really a problem for us in our human lives? How do you handle conflict? Are you a runner or are you the threatener? Which are you? Are you Jacob or are you Esau? Are you Jacob or are you Laban's sons? A runner or a threatener? Are you fearful or are you the cause of fear in others? Neither of those are good ways to make decisions. King Saul. He feared that his army was going to abandon him, and so he went out and he offered a sacrifice that he was not supposed to offer, and in the end, he lost the whole nation. King Ahaz feared the two kings of the north, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. He feared those two kings that they were going to come and put him out of his place, so he sent a bribe up to the king of Assyria to handle those things, and in the end, caused the destruction of his own nation. Judas feared that he would lose everything, having followed Jesus and seeing no personal gain from it, and so he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, which he never got to spend, because he ended up throwing it back and going out and hanging himself. Is he making decisions based on fear, never has a good end to it. It usually ends up with something worse happening to you. But what's the other side of it? What's the contrast that we see here? Notice that true decision-making is based on divine faith. You can make a decision based on fear, or you can make the decision based on faith. Or should I say they faith in the divine. see, Jacob failed to understand this. He doesn't through this whole chapter. He hasn't up until this point. By God's grace, we'll see that later on, he will come to true faith. But he still doesn't understand it at this point. You see, God had made a promise all the way back to Abraham. We saw it in chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, "'Lift up your eyes.'" Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He had then reconfirmed that promise to Isaac. And at Bethel, 20 years earlier, he had confirmed it to Jacob. I will give you the land. How much heartache and how much time... Lost, would Jacob have saved? For himself? For his whole family? If he had rested on God's word, God's promise? Instead, he remains a manipulator, trying to work things out. There's a hymn written by John Samus in which the chorus goes Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trusting. Obedience grows out of faith. Knowing that God is sovereignly in control of everything, when we rest in Him, when we trust in Him, we will know that God is working all things for the good. The three Hebrew men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as most people better know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, understand that as they stood before the king, they declared this truth. If this be so, as the king is preparing to throw them into a fiery furnace, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What are they saying? They're saying, we believe that God is sovereign over all things. We believe that God is sovereign over a fiery furnace. We believe that he is sovereign over you, king. We know that God can and that he will in some way, deliver us. But if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace and we burn up in that fiery furnace, that doesn't change the fact that we know that God is still working all things for the good and therefore we're going to trust him. Is that the way that you live? Do you approach your life that way? Paul wrote that we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, Jacob had sight. He had a vision from God. But he based his decision On the fear that he had of Laban and Laban's sons, rather than on God's word. You and I have the word made even more certain, is the way that Peter puts it, because of Jesus Christ. More certain than what Jacob had. Will you trust that God is sovereignly working for you, for the good, for his glory, and therefore walk by Faith in his eternal love that he has set on you if you're his child. Which brings us to the second division in this chapter in which we see a second contrast. There is a contrast between human deception versus divine dedication. Human deception, divine dedication. It's human nature to try to fix things so that they work out the way that we want them to work out. We're going to manipulate and deceive. We're going to lie. We'll embellish stories to make us look good and to make things work for what we think is our good. As I said before, in our sinful human nature, we are all Jacobs. We are all supplanters. We are all deceivers. We are all manipulators. Verse 20 reminds us of this truth about Jacob. It says, and Jacob... Tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. This is Jacob. We've seen it over and over again. It's, it's his mentality. It's his lifestyle. Is to always manipulate, trick, try to do something because he thinks that somehow it's going to make him have a better life. It hasn't worked yet, but he keeps trying it. Now, had Jacob walked by faith, he wouldn't have needed to try to trick Laban. So notice, the human tendency is to decide based on facts. Well, at least facts as I interpret those facts. Facts of the way that I think they should be. Those facts, they don't have to be factual, as Joe Biden put it. We choose truth over facts. What? Aren't truth and facts supposed to go hand in hand? But instead, choose your own version of truth based upon our manipulation of facts and call that truth. That's what our politicians do, but it's not just politicians. It's everyone tends to do that if they do not walk by faith. We manipulate facts for ourselves. Jacob does it. We see it in verse 4. And the verses following that. It says, so, so Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, did he give them facts? If you read down through there, he gives them a long, lengthy reasons why they need to flee. Why they need to go and why what he was telling them was the truth. However, he left out the parts that skewed them in his favor and away from Laban, their father. Sure, Laban changed Jacob's payment ten times. But what Jacob doesn't tell them is the reason that he kept changing all those wages was because Jacob was doing all kinds of things to manipulate the wages so that it would go his way. Now, I want you to think of it this way. Suppose a person, somebody you know, says to you that they got fired. And they got fired, they say, because the company owners didn't like how their bookkeeping came out to show them as crooks. That is to show the company... crooks, And so they fired me because of my bookkeeping that showed that they were crooks. Now, that makes you feel sorry for them, right? But what they're not telling you is the reason that the bookkeeping makes the company look like they're crooks is because he was the crook that was fixing the books. Think back on your past week. Were there times when you stretched the truth a little bit? Were there times this past week where maybe you told just ah, a little white lie? Maybe you took credit for something that a coworker did? Or another family member did? It's like politics. Politicians are experts at manipulating facts to get you to believe their particular slant on things. President Trump's phone call to the Ukrainian president. Is that an impeachable offense? Well, it depends on who's interpreting the facts. Is he making decisions based on facts, whether those facts come from scientists, medical doctors, educators, parents, spouses. That's not how God wants us to make choices. Instead, notice that true decision making is based on divine faithfulness. Do we base it on perceived facts or do we base our decision making on the faithfulness of a sovereign God who has proved himself throughout all the ages to be faithful? But you might say, well, yeah, I, I believe that, but most of the decisions that I make are really not spiritual decisions. Well, let me ask you, would Jacob have really thought that whether he left Laban family, and went back to his family, that that was a spiritual decision? Would he have sat down and said, well, what is the theology about my leaving? Chances are pretty good, he wouldn't have thought that at all. You see, most of the decisions that we make in our life, we don't see them as spiritual decisions. But that's not the way God saw it. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of our chapter says, I am the God of Bethel. Uh, This is, Bethel was the place. That 20 years earlier, God had shown him the vision of the ladder going up and down from heaven. He says, I am the God of Bethel. That is the God of 20 years ago when you made a promise that you were going to follow me and you failed to do it in these past 20 years. I am the God of Bethel. You have been unfaithful, but I am the faithful God. I made a promise. I'm keeping that promise. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. What do we see here? What we see is Jacob making a decision based upon his twisting of the facts to make him look good, but God is making the decision based upon God's faithful word that he had given 20 years earlier. And that word that he had given even earlier than that to Isaac and to Abraham. And so think about it yourself. Are you thinking about moving? Stop asking whether the school system is good or whether the houses are cheaper or if it might move you closer to your family. The real question is that where God wants me to serve him better? Can I serve God better? in that location, than this location. You see, so many professing Christians are wasting their lives because they're making decisions based upon what appears from a worldly perspective to be good for them. But God wants us to look at things and ask, what is the good? The good. Because through the good for the kingdom of God, it becomes the good for me. Take Jacob's decision to try to get the goats and the sheep to mate by putting stakes around the watering troughs, which comes in the chapter before this. He thought that those were wise decisions. He he was manipulating things so that he could get better cattle, sheep and goats, from Laban. But listen to what God had to say about it. Now, that's Jacob's approach but here's God's approach. We see it in verse 12. Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. In other words, it wasn't Jacob because you manipulated all of these things that we see in the chapter before. It wasn't because you did that, but because I was watching over you and I had made a promise to you that I'd bless you. And no matter what Laban was doing, I was in charge of that. I'm in control. So it had nothing to do with all that manipulation and and, and putting those stakes and all that kind of stuff. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the fact that I made a promise and I keep my promises. I am faithful. Those lambs, those kids that were born, were born because of my decision. Remember what the scripture says about us as human beings? That in the womb it is God who is weaving us together. That DNA does not come together by accident. It comes together because God is weaving it together. That stands true not only for us as human beings, but it did for these kids and for these lambs. For the goats, the sheep. God was faithful in keeping his promise to bless Jacob. Stop looking at the outward facts and begin to trust God in his faithfulness. We come now to the third division in this chapter. This third division which contrasts human defenses versus divine deliverance. How big of a wall do you have to build to stop an airplane from flying over? How strong does a shield have to be for a knight to be protected from a fire-breathing dragon. You see all those movies and stuff where the knight has this shield that's about this tall and this wide, and this dragon is going, you know, it's like massive furnace blowing at you, but that little tiny shield keeps him from burning up. Never has made sense to me. Well, how fast does Jacob have to travel to get away from Laban? Jacob's got to travel with his children, his wives, all of his cattle, the sheep, the baby goats and, and, uh, and, and lambs, right? He's got all that that he's got to travel. How f- fast does he have to travel to get away from Laban who is going to come on camels and horseback? I don't care what kind of lead you have. They're going to overtake you. He doesn't think that through. So what happens? Well, Laban catches up to Jacob. And in verse 31 and following, it says, Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods should not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. In other words, he has been caught. The army of Laban is surrounding him. He has no other recourse than to say, whatever you want, there's nothing I can do about it. That's the way it is in life, folks. When we try to avoid problems, they eventually will catch up to us. Jacob had taken off when Laban went away on a three day uh, working trip. That gave Jacob a three day head start, but it wasn't enough. Now, later on in this passage, which Tony read, they built a monument, a, a large pile of rocks to protect each other, themselves from each other. It didn't stop their descendants, the descendants of the nation of Israel in Syria, who were at war constantly. So notice that the human tendency is to decide based on foolishness. We make decisions, if they are not based upon God's faithfulness and God's glory, we make decisions that eventually turn out to be foolish. How many times have you looked back on decisions that you made and thought, boy, that was really stupid. I don't know about you, but that seems to happen to me about twice a day, or maybe more often. <laughs> have you ever thought that you were in the right, strongly argued your position, maybe even won the argument. And then later on, you found out that what your argument was was wrong. It's happened to me a few times. I don't admit it, but it has. Well, that's what happens to Jacob in verse 32. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them, that is Laban's gods. He has just told Laban, you can kill. If you find those gods amongst us, you can kill them. Rachel hadn't told Jacob that he'd stolen, that she had stolen the gods. So, you can kill him. Do you know Rachel? Rachel is the love of Jacob's life. The apple of his eye. And he's just put her life on the line because they'll know everything. How often in our lives we make decisions because we think we know when we really don't. As Independence Day guys say, oops, oops, what's that mean? Well, it's human nature to think we know what is right even though none of us are omniscient. God alone is omniscient. Rachel stole those gods, put the whole family in danger. In another chapter, she's going to have to throw those gods away. She gains nothing by stealing them. You see why it's so foolish to try to manipulate things? To threaten in any other way to try to figure out how to get your way for the future. But notice the true decision-making, that it is based on divine favor. You see, Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Instead, he encouraged us to trust the Father, the Father that clothes the lilies of the field, the Father that feeds the birds of the air to trust the Heavenly Father who knows what we need even before we ask Him. Jacob is running all over the place trying to outfox his father-in-law without success. Meanwhile, his Heavenly Father was already handling the problem for him. In verse 24, we see God at work. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, How would you like a God like that, right? Anytime you've got problems, God just steps up and says, I'm his bodyguard, don't touch him. That'd be pretty good, right? Well, the truth is, that is the fact. God is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, God is your bodyguard. He is carrying it out. God is working all things for the good. In the book by John Bunyan, called Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, his name is Christian. He is walking down the road, and there is a pair of roaring, raving lions just going at it, ready to tear him to bits. And he is petrified at first, until he realizes that these two roaring lions are on chains. And oh, they can come up almost to the road, but they can't come onto the road. He can walk safely between them as long as he stays on that road. As long as he stays on the road of trust, God has the enemy on chains. Jacob should have learned that lesson himself. But he needs to hear it again. And this time he hears it, not from God, but from his angry father-in-law. In verse 29, It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God put that chain on Laban. What did Paul say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He goes on in Romans 8 to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? The final division contrasts human departure versus divine division. Wouldn't it be nice if you could always avoid conflict? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wait until you go to heaven. That's the only place it's going to happen. It's human nature to try to do that, to try to avoid conflict, but it seldom works. So Jacob and Laban, they decide they're going to solve their conflict by building this pillar. as They decide to separate one from another. The text ends in verse 55 by saying, Early in the morning Laban rose, kissed his grandchildren, his daughters, and blessed them, and then Laban departed and returned home. It sounds like peace now. Jacob, you go your way, I'm going to go my way. But what's the result? You have a family that's torn apart. There's bitterness. And eventually their descendants will kill each other. So notice that human tendency is to decide based on failure. That's right. A couple ends their marriage in divorce. They say it's for the best, but who's best? It isn't good for them, and it certainly isn't good for their children or for the extended family. And if they are Christians, it's neither good for their church family nor for the kingdom of God. A son and a father have a falling out. They separate. They no longer speak to one another. It seems like a peaceful solution. At least we're not arguing. At least we're not fighting like we always have. Well, that's the situation that we find here with Jacob and Laban. They find themselves in this situation as they make this covenant. We find it in verses 51 and 52. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I set between me and you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. It sounds like a wise solution. A peace treaty. But it doesn't handle the problems of the heart, does it? It will fail. Only God can change the heart. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the only way to have healing. It's the only way to avoid the ongoing struggles to come to the place in our lives where we see what Christ did. He suffered because of us, died because of us, and yet because of Him, God has forgiven us. So notice that the true decision making must be based on the future. A divine future, not just future. You see, God has plans for your future. If you're a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, he has plans, but you don't want to know what those plans are. But if you're a Christian, God has plans for your future. They're hindered by your failure to forgive. They're hindered by your failing to deal with past pains and hurts. By our failure to trust him in whatever the situations are. When we know that our future rests in God's purpose and not in our abilities, we no longer have to hold on to the bitterness or the resentment. Without even understanding what they were saying, Laban and Jacob ended this transaction with a monument as they erected it by making a truthful declaration. We see it in verse 48. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. They didn't really know what they were saying. But the reality is, that's what God was going to do. God was going to watch over, particularly uh, Jacob. The question is, do you know that he's doing that for you? Will you trust Him? Or are you going to continue to manipulate your way through life? God is working for the good. He is working in the lives of those that He has chosen. He was doing that even before you heard the good news of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. He's watching over you here in Brooklyn, or if you live in Staten Island. Karen, Danielle, Matt, and I... We're going to be going to Pennsylvania for her mother's funeral later this week. God is going to be there. He is the God of our past, our present, and our future. All right, Matt. Rest in that truth. God is in charge. And so as we come to the conclusion, have you learned to trust God in his sovereign control over the whole world or are you a half truster resting more on your abilities than on god's greatness let's pray thank you father we thank you that you are god we are not all too often we try to establish ourselves as god we try to manipulate life we try to work it so that it turns out for our good and the vast majority of times we cause problems rather than good. But we thank you that you are the one who is in charge of the good and we pray that you would teach us to rest on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the love that you've bestowed upon us for our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy, lean, rest, set ourselves upon Him who is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.